Hi guys, I'm Danny and I'm Molly and this is Black Chick Lit and we have something special to bring to you this week. Exciting. But before we get to it, do you, we should pay the bills first and then we'll get to the <laughs> yeah. fun stuff. FX is Kindred. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. So this episode is sponsored by FX's Kindred, the original series only on Hulu. Based on the celebrated and critically acclaimed novel by Octavia E. Butler, FX's Kindred centers on Dana James, a young Black woman and aspiring writer. Dana begins to settle into her new home in Los Angeles and is violently pulled back and forth in time. She emerges at a 19th century plantation, a place intimately linked with Dana and her family. The clock is ticking as Dana struggles to confront secrets she never knew ran through her blood. FX's Kindred, all episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Awesome. And not to like brag, but we were able to get a screener of the first episode. And if you've read the book, they threw some wrenches in there. So you will have some intrigue, (laughs) even if you think you know the plot. So I also liked it because the music was giving off Terminator 2 vibes, which I'm always here for anything that reminds me of Terminator 2. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about our awesome panel today. We got a group of experts, including authors, illustrators, booksellers, and people who have, I guess we covered everyone with authors. I was going to repeat authors again, but they all have close relationships with Kindred and the work of Octavia Butler, and they're excited to talk about it. So we're going to introduce our panel. I will start with Mr. Damian Duffy. Damian Duffy is a cartoonist, scholar, writer, curator, lecturer, teacher, and a Glyph Comics, Eisner Comics, Bram Stoker, and Hugo Award-winning number one New York Times best-selling graphic novelist. He holds a master and a PhD in library information sciences from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where he teaches courses on computers and culture and social media and global change. His many publications range from academic essays and comic form on new media and learning to art books about underrepresentation in comics culture to editorial comics to a graphic novel adaptation of Kindred by Octavia Butler, with his J2D2 Arts counterpart, John Jennings, who we will introduce later. Kindred, a graphic novel adaptation, was awarded the 2017 Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Graphic Novel and the 2018 Eisner Comics Award for Best Adaptation from Another Medium. Their follow-up, Parable of the Sower, a graphic novel adaptation, won the 2021 Ignite Award for Best Comics Team and the 2021 Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story or Comic. Co-editor of the Black Comics Returns art book from the Magnetic Collection at Lion Forge Comics, Damien has given talks and led workshops about comics, art, and education internationally. Welcome, Damien. Thank you for having me. Our next panelist is John Jennings. John Jennings is a professor, author, graphic novelist, curator, Harvard Fellow, New York Times bestseller, 2018 Eisner Award winner, and all-around champion of Black culture. As a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside, Jennings examines the visual culture of race in various media forms, including film, illustrated fiction, and comics and graphic novels. He is also the director of Abrams Comic Arts imprint, Megascope, which publishes graphic novels focused on the experiences of people of color. His research interests include the visual culture of hip-hop, Afrofuturism, and politics visual literacy, horror, and ethnogothic and speculative design, and its applications to visual rhetoric. Jennings is co-editor of the 2016 Eisner Award-winning collection, The Black of the Ink, Constructions of Black Identity in Comics and Sequential Art, and co-founder, organizer of the, the Schomburg Center's Black Comic Book Festival in Harlem. He is co-founder and organizer of the MLK NorCal's Black Comics Art Festival in San Francisco, and also SoulCon, the Brown and Black Comics Expo at The Ohio State University. Nova Sparks is a writer born and raised in the Bronx of New York City. She grew up watching and reading science fiction, horror, and fantasy, and quickly became a fanatic. At an early age, Nova realized that none of her favorite and beloved characters on television, in movies, and in storybooks looked like her. She then made it her mission to weave and write sci-fi and fantasy stories in which underrepresented groups are front and center. Welcome, Nova. Hi, thank you for having me. And our final panelist is Isis Asari is a queer, femme, Afrocentric bibliophile, a cultural science fiction and fantasy columnist, and an entrepreneur with a focus on literature. They are the founder and CEO of Sister Sci-Fi. Sister Sci-Fi is the first Black-owned bookstore focused on science fiction and fantasy in the United States 
and validated by the American Booksellers Association. Thank you and welcome to all of our panelists. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to realize I had everybody in alphabetical order because I didn't have Isis's last name. Well, welcome. So I think just to do some overview for our listeners, we really got the opportunity to do this panel because Kindred's coming out. Not a lot of people, not everyone has been exposed to her work. So we really wanted to do a deep dive in Octavia Butler and Kindred and, you know, how it's sort of impacted Black speculative fiction specifically. So we started with an episode that was sort of a primer. We discussed Octavia Butler and her history, and we really did dug into the plot of Kindred. And now we kind of want to talk about Kindred, talk about Octavia Butler's work, and sort of like open it up to people who are really in the space and what they're observing and things like that. So we're going to have questions for anyone can answer, and then we're going to have questions sort of targeted for each of you, because we really just love to hear like what your expertise brings to this conversation. So let's start it off with, could you all just sort of go around the horn and talk about like how you were introduced to Octavia Butler's work, how you were introduced to Kindred specifically, and how that impacted you? Okay, I guess I'll start because that was the first alphabetically, when you didn't know Isis's last <laughs> name, I guess. But no, I was introduced to Octavia Butler through Kindred when I was a sophomore in undergrad in creative writing. I'd written a story that was like from a first person perspective and the professor suggested I read Kindred. And I came to the novel not knowing anything, not knowing anything about Butler, but also not knowing anything about what the story of Kindred was. And it was an older edition where the cover doesn't give like anything away. And if you read it like that, it's written in such a way where you don't realize that Dana is black until like page 30. And you realize it at the exact same moment she realizes she's traveled back in time to a slave plantation. <laughs> um, and like, especially at a time when I was a like young writer and I'm trying to be like super self-serious about like craft or whatever, and that just like blew my mind because it like it puts you right in the place of the character. It makes the stakes apparent to both you and the narrator at like the exact same moment. It's just like a brilliant sort of structural thing. And then also just I mean, Dana's, uh, Dana talks about her career becoming a writer. So that was another thing I was like really at, at the top of my mind when I was reading it. And then it was the first novel I think I read that talked about race in a very sort of uh, straightforward and clear eyed way. It didn't sort of tap dance around issues. It didn't try to like whitewash history. And I remember just feeling like really appreciative of that. So yeah, so I was just a huge fan of hers from then on. And after several, like, a couple attempts of trying to adapt Kindred, uh, John and I were fortunate enough to be able to you know, take part in her amazing legacy. That's great. I really like what you said about not knowing she was Black, because I don't even think I would have realized that. I have to go back and look at how it reads. Yeah. yeah. So anybody can go? <laughs> yeah, we can, we can help call on people, too, if that's more comfortable for people. Okay. Well, I can go. I mean, so I won't take up too much time. Yeah, so I have always been a science fiction and fantasy horror reader. It's my mom's fault. She gave me all the books and the comics, the B-movies to watch, and we would discuss those. But, you know, in all that reading, I had never come across Octavia Butler's work and reading a lot of, like, the classic sci-fi and stuff like that. And and I don't think I came across her work until the early 2000s, actually. You know, this is actually, you know, I went to an HBCU, went to Jackson State University, and you know, we were studying the quote-unquote classics of the Harlem Renaissance and all these particular types of literary figures from African-American literature. And I had never come across, like, you know, the works of Samuel R. Delaney or Octavia Butler or Charles Saunders or any of the classic, like, foundational Black sci-fi and fantasy writers. And I was, like, blown away by it. because so I was in a, I think I was in a bookstore and I saw Wild Seed. And I want to say it was the it was the cover where, like, the main character uh, is on Anyasamu. That's not right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right, right? Okay, Anya was she turns into these different animals, you know, and so and I'm forgetting the artist right now because I'm a big fan of his work and I had never seen his cover before, but it's like her head was turning into like a zebra and and like all these different animals and it's a classic cover and I was like, but it's a black woman and I was like, what what is this book? <laughs> and, like, and it's I, I read Wild Sea and I think it, it was just one of the most beautifully constructed narratives about like just issues around gender and race that I'd ever seen and I just fell in love with her work and so the next book I read was Kindred after that and then 
subsequently, you know, parable and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I just felt very seen by the work. You know, it's, it's just, I think it was just like, I wish I could go back and, you know, recapture that feeling of being like, wait a minute, there's, this is a science fiction fantasy book by a person. Co- this is, this woman, wow. And I was just blown away by, it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm grateful for when I did come to her work, but I feel like, man, I really missed out earlier. I could have already had this in my head, you know, anyway. But yeah, that's how I felt about it. I mean, just just a, a wonderful writer. And honestly, it's really gone too soon. Shelby, do you want to go next? Um, Yeah, sure. So I was introduced to Octavia Butler like super late in life. I remember I was at Afropunk in 2014 in Brooklyn and I was one of the vendors there. So I was I had an actual tent in a booth and I was selling my books. So which was already like hard because it was some, it's a music festivals and, and people weren't interested in like reading or like buying books as they're having fun and, you know, drinking and having a good time. So I had to be very creative at getting people over to my tent to get people to come and like, you know, see what I was selling. And, you know, I had like a dry erase board and I was like black sci-fi, you know, wrote all these things on the board and people started gravitating over. And then, you know, they read like the synopsis and then they started talking to me and I gave them a little, this, this feel. And then they were like, you ever heard of Octavia Butler, you know? And everyone was saying that to me. And I was like, who is this lady? <laughs> I never heard of her before. It was to the point where I thought she was there. And I was, I, I did a loop around. I was like, who's the lady? So I kind of like wrote it down. I put it in, you know, my old iPad at the time. And I was like, I have to like find out who this lady is. Because if everybody's talking about her and I don't know who she is, then I'm something's not right. My first um, introduction to her was um, Kindred. And I read that a long time ago and I loved it. And I was like, okay, this is new. <laughs> it was, you know, kind of refreshing to, to read something that was steeped in sci-fi, but also history. And I, at the time, I was like, oh, you can do that? <laughs> like, like, we can, like, speak about real stuff in a way that's, like, also fantasy and also, you know, sci-fi, you know. And then I put out another one of my books, and someone put in a comment. And at the time, I only read Kendrick. I didn't read anything else at the time. And then someone commented about Lilith's Brood. I was like, oh, I got to read that. <laughs> and then I read that, and I was like, this lady is, like, awesome. And then, you know... I thought that she was going to like have more books and stuff out. And I found that she passed and I was like, I have to like kind of, you know, like catch up on all of her work. And there's so much of her things that I still have not read. I want to read all of her, um, you know, short stories and stuff like that, that she put out. So yeah, I'm, I was kind of like late being introduced to her, but I'm excited better late than never. You know, she's awesome. We don't shave. You come to fiction when you come to it and it's, it's there for everyone. We were really late coming to beloved. We have our beloved episode. We're like, we read this in our 20, late 20s. Yes. Thank you, Nova. Yeah, for me, the first book I read by Octavia Butler was um, Fledgling. And I think a friend was like, oh, I love Fledgling. You love vampires. You should read it. We should discuss it. I'm like, I'm here for it. And for me, it was definitely like Blackness and fantasy, which was amazing. I had spent like most of my academic life, like steeped in Black culture and steeped in Black literature. And like, in, like my personal interest was like in science fiction and fantasy and like reading Fletchland was like one of the first times when like, I'm like, oh, there's a universe where those two intersect and they intersect so beautifully. So that was like really exciting. I was like, why haven't I been reading like black science fiction and black speculative fiction like before this? But then I was so enthused by like the community and the ways of being that she brought into Fletchling and Blackness literally being a superpower with like melanin giving Shuri like additional abilities and powers that, you know, basically made the white vampires jealous. I was like, I'm here for this. I'm here for this all day. Kindred. I read some, I read Lilith's Brood, like Nova. I also like Nova, like was trying to sell books at Afropunk. Afropunk Joburg, that was hard. So you got more creative than me. I was like, God. <laughs> so I read Kindred after I'd read like Lilith's Brood and some other stuff by Octavia Butler. And I remember the first time I started and then Dana goes back in time and is dealing with like Rufus White mom and pulling a gun on her. And then she comes back and then she's like interacting with like her husband who's white. And I was like, I feel traumatized for Dana. I need to put this book <laughs> down. I cannot continue. <clears throat> and then I had to, I was a part of an Octavia Butler slow read where um, the slow read was reading all the published works by Octavia Butler and like this that quarter we were reading Kindred and I was like I, I gotta sit down I gotta finish it I gotta read the whole thing 
reading it in community was very healing for me. But like Kindred is one of the hardest books for me to read by Octavia Butler. I'm excited about the adaption, but it's always one of the hardest books to read. Yeah, that's actually a really nice dovetail into our next question, which is what were your thoughts when you heard about this adaptation and kind of the slew of adaptations that are coming out of Octavia Butler's works? So we can go okay, I'll start because I love book to television adaptations, like as a rule. <laughs> I like, I love Queen Sugar. I watch all the interview with the vampire, the, the first season's television show on AMC. I love The Walking Dead. So I am really excited about all the book to television adaptations. Like I'm excited for Dawn. I'm excited for Wild Seed. Supposedly Issa Rae is working on Fledgling for HBO. I think with Kindred, I was also excited, but I didn't really get, I was had some anticipation, but I didn't get excited until I saw the trailer. And it made, when I read Kindred, I don't think I framed it as horror. I just framed it as traumatizing. And then watching the trailer for Kindred, I was like, oh, it's horror. And then it just like, things just kind of clicked in my brain. And so I'm excited about like the horror of it, getting like being able to see the psychology of Dana and like, the other characters. I'm also excited to see what they do differently. Like, I think like she, Dana has a co-traveler besides her husband, who's also a black woman. So she'll have somebody to process the experience with, which she didn't have in the book. And that's, I did, like, I think that's publicly available. Like I read that in um, an article. So I'm excited about the things that they might change because in Queen Sugar, that adaptation, there are a lot of things that they changed from the book, which actually made the television show much richer and engaging and allow it to have more nuanced commentary on social issues. Agree wholeheartedly, especially on how, and this we can get to it. It seems like that's just something you have to do to adapt to television and to adapt to that medium. You just have, and especially a work that's supposed to take place in contemporary times, but was written 50, <clears throat> 40 years ago. I don't want to age people too much. It was written 40 years ago. So I think that's a really great point. Yeah, I'd love to hear from John and Damien, especially since you guys have adapted her work before, your thoughts on adapting into this new medium. Yeah, I mean, I think the making the setting contemporary to now is the part of the adaptation I'm most interested in, just because that's something that we had sort of talked about and thought about in our graphic novel adaptation and we decided not to do. We kept it in the 70s. I think it makes sense for TV because like it opens up sort of a whole new avenue for like kind of uh, contemporary social critique. But at the same time, that's something I'm really curious to see what they do with it and sort of how impactful any sort of contemporary commentary is to the overall story. But yeah, like is a very daunting thing <laughs> to adapt Octavia Butler, or at least it was for me and still is. But if anything else, I'm just like impressed at anyone who who does it because I know you know, to a certain extent, how hard it is. Like comics, very different from TV, obviously. But yeah, I mean, overall, I'm excited about it. I'm trying not to be like too critical because I read that book 14 times. So every little change, I'll be like, how could you, you know, which is super hypocritical because like we had to change stuff to fit in the graphic novel, but I'll still be a jerk about it. I don't care. <laughs> he really will. He's going to be a jerk. So yeah, I'm I'm excited about it, but you know, I'm like Damien, I'm there's a we're very close to this narrative, you know, and me so much from a visual standpoint, because I'm already seeing things in the visuals that are not necessarily bothering me. I'm just wondering why they did, you know what I'm saying? And uh, not to be nitpicky about things, but you know, I had to spend a lot of time studying costuming and place and things of that nature. And I also know like a lot of the decisions that they make for a television show are really about cost. I mean you know, if you think about it, you know, Kindred, if you made it as the current setting being in the 70s, you know, or the, you know, the the, the present being the 70s, then you have like almost like a double, you know, uh, a story that's, that's in two historical time spaces, <laughs> which would be very expensive to make, you know, because you have like the 1970s and also, you know, the 19th century to, to deal with. So I can see why, like on a production basis, why it would be easier to set it in current day, you know. And this is something that we, we we struggle with a lot too, because we've done so many adaptations now to a certain degree. Is that the word "adapt"? You know, kind of literally means to change, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, so so when you're adapting something, you're you're thinking about the affordances of the different media, and um, 
trying to figure out what aspects of that medium are best for getting across the types of, you know, narratives, but also the emotional beats and things of that nature. So uh, like Dr. Duffy, I'm like, OK, let's see. How, let's see where, where this goes, you know, because I've seen it. saw the trailer. I thought it definitely resonated well. Yes, we uh, I says we've always thought of it as horror. I mean, we literally want I mean, the Bram Stoker is the award given for horror. So so like we when we approached it we're like this is terrifying. So let's go there. Let's let's make it that because and I, and I will teach it in my horror class. I teach a class on race and horror. I'll definitely be teaching this uh, series in that in that uh, class. One of the first things that came to mind when I heard that this was being adapted was I was a little fearful because anything that's being adapted to screen, whether it's TV or, you know, the big screen, again, things are changed when we know that. But also sometimes things are kind of removed. (laughs) And I was like wondering, like, is there going to be, are there going to be times where we're watching this and having read the story, are we going to be like, hey, that something should have happened here? Or, you know, that kind of like helps drive the story forward. And will it become a different story? And I hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, I have faith that that it won't. Yeah, I was really excited to see that it is set in the now. And now I feel like we're all going to be watching something brand new now. Like as no matter us, how many times we read the book, I know you read it 14 times, like Jesus, but <laughs> I do feel like now I'm going to watch it and, and be just as surprised and excited about, you know, things that happens as someone who's sitting next to me, who's never read her work before, which is like kind of like a gift to all of us. Cause you know, she's been out for so long and, you know, everyone's kind of like have these tattered copies of her book that we've read a million times, you know, with, you know, sweat marks and stuff. So now it's brand new. So I'm excited about that. I think that what you kind of touched on is really important is the fact that it has that they're working to make it applicable to such a big audience. Cause I would love to hear sort of, this isn't on the list, Molly, so hopefully it's okay. I'm going a little bit rogue, but I'd love to hear from you all from what you've observed in these spaces. It feels like Octavia Butler is kind of a niche and maybe not to us cause we're bookish people, but I feel like if I were to go to someone like a coworker who's maybe just really into film or just a general coworker. And I said like, Hey, have you heard of Kindred? Have you read Kindred? A lot of them have not. So I was kind of wondering like, why do you think that her work has been sort of, uh, well, it's a two prong question. One, why are we just, why do you think, maybe I shouldn't ask this. Maybe this gets a bit too spicy. Cause I like to hear like, why do you think she hasn't been adapted yet? Despite her works being out for decades. And like, what do you think is keeping the work, from having that sort of wide reach? And I feel like this might be a spicy question, so I don't want to get us in trouble, but I would love to hear you all's thoughts, especially Isis as a bookseller and Nova as an author and working in publishing, what you all think of those things. I just had a really quick answer, was that it's too good, and that's why. That was it. It's It's too good, it's too juicy. I'm here for the spicy questions. I know there are interviews where Butler says like, she would talk to publishers and it'd be like the assumption that like black people don't read science fiction and then white people don't read books with black people in it. So I think that was just kind of like, is there really a market for Octavia Butler's work? And I'm naively going to say like those assumptions have changed and then also the market has changed. And I think like with different medium and different technology, there's there's a world where like niche markets are major markets, right? Like you're like, oh, Octavia Butler is really kind of niche and like black speculative fiction is kind of niche. But before Sister Sci-Fi, I was doing something that was focused on queer women of color in film, which was like niches upon niches upon niches. So this audience feels like huge to me. But it, that would be different if the comparison is like mainstream America where this is made for everybody. I was doing a live an interview with Sherry Renee, Sherry Renee Thomas on Wednesday, and she pointed to academia and researchers and professors and their work in keeping the work of Octavia Butler alive. So in that regard, I'll thank John Jennings and Dr. Duffy for like keeping, you know, Octavia Butler in conversations and teaching it to students and doing research about it and doing adaptations. So when Hollywood was like, we don't know like who's Octavia Butler, like there were conversations where they needed to be conversations. So those are the two things I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, Hollywood, David, her books have been optioned since like the 80s or 90s. They just never got made. That That's useless information. But there you go. There you go. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I mean, you know, some of it, of course, is what we expect, quote unquote, mainstream science fiction and fantasy to be, you know, and um, 
not to be blunt about it, but it's like, you know, it's it's these these spaces are very, are very white, very male, very restrictive to anything that they consider outside of their purview. You know, there's this thing called racism that is a huge part in these things as well. Right. I mean, it's ridiculous that her work is just not coming to bear. It's, it's she's one of the I mean, literally like one of the best selling. I, I definitely I mean, she's one of the top selling like black women authors ever in history of, the, of, of literature, right? I mean, American, right? I mean, am I making that up? I mean, so, and again, I think it talks about these demographics and how short-sighted, you know, producers can be as far as like what they think is going to sell and what they think the audiences want to see, you know? And I, and I think it's not just in literature, it's in all media, you know? And what's happened fairly recently over the last, what, decade or so, maybe a little bit longer, is that we we see like those walls breaking down, especially when people of color or from various backgrounds get into spaces where they can actually make the things that they want to see. I mean, because that's what Octavia did. She wrote the books that she wanted to see, right? And that's what she's encouraged people to do is like, if you don't see yourself in the space, make it for yourself. You know, people like Toni Morrison and, 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 and Chip Delaney and people like that, they literally wrote themselves into existence. And, you know, and now we have no excuse but to make more. I think we're in like a a time of like awakening, but also a time of like someone like spreading around Zequil because we got a lot of people going right back to sleep. So I think this is a good time for her work to be put out there. I think it's a perfect time, too, because I can see this coming out maybe like 10, 15 years ago. It may not have had the same you know, reaction as it's having now. And a lot of it has to do with her themes are very difficult. And a lot of people don't want to have difficult conversations. So like race and gender and sexuality and colonialism and oppression and things like that, you know, you have groups of people who are like tired of hearing about it. And you have groups of people who don't want to know. I mean, like, hello, we had a show was that on HBO where they showed like the Tulsa massacre and everybody thought that was like fiction. Yeah. And it's like, this is the world we're living in right now. And I think, although that show is not on anymore, people still talking about in ways where you will think a new season's coming out and and it's not. And unfortunate for us, but unfortunately, you know, hopefully, even though we know what the motives are, hopefully it'll be done in a way that's respectful of her work and it will have people who don't know who she is and who don't usually want to have conversation like this feel like this is a safe place to have that conversation because it's done in in a way that, you know, marries like fantasy and, you know, fiction into, you know, very real um, situations. And actually Watchmen kind of ge- made me less hesitant about the adaptation because I believe the showrunner on Kindred worked on Watchmen also. Okay. I think um, and yeah, like as you're saying, Nova, like, I mean, that was like hugely impactful in a very sad way because people were like, thought it was fiction and didn't know it was actual history. But well, the fact that they... Sorry, no, you finished. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say the fact that they, the Watchmen show was so... Used it in such a way that wasn't, like, exploitative, but uh, oh. more sort of educational and almost healing in a way. Or not healing, but at least, like, opening eyes to, you know, the wound that was sort of left there festering. That gives me hope for Kindred because there are those sort of same themes of repeating history and sort of actually dealing with the history of oppression. Yeah. I was going to say, thank God our, our educational system is going to cover all that stuff and not ban books. So obviously they're going to learn about these particular historical moments that are unseemly, you know, right? But <laughs> they were banning. Oh, you were being sarcastic. Sarcastic. I mean, it's funny because like we're at this point where like the people who are making this work are actually like having to bear the burden of actually having conversations like this in the work you know yeah. we have no we have no choice you know because the truth is that it has to get out you know so yeah I'm, I'm excited about it but i'm also like we should just be able to, to create work that, that is a, this purely escapist but we can't you know? yeah right that's like my mission in life yeah and then going back to like danny your original question and something that john said again i don't necessarily think of octavia butler as niche the data may be a little bit dated but I read somewhere that there are 300 um, science fiction and fantasy authors that have sold more than a million copies of their work in total. So like everything they've written and only three of them are black. According to my limited research, none of them were Native American and Octavia Butler and N.K. Jemison. So I can't remember who the third one is. And that's funny, but thank you. I was like, John probably knows. And that was my guess. So yeah, so like for me, Octavia Butler is mainstream. And if you don't know about her, like, 
you know, get on Google, go to the library, do your research, mm-hmm. get to know. Yeah. I'd love to dig into this, Danny, if I can go rogue for a minute. No, go for it. right ahead. <laughs> so I kind of sparked some thoughts this last discussion. Like, I feel like I'm back in my English like classes. Like, I'm loving this discussion. I do feel like outside of the book world, we are seeing more Black, more Black femme, more Black queer representation in horror, science fiction, fantasy, et cetera, et cetera. But with that comes a lot of negative attention from people who would rather not see us in these spaces. I'd love to talk a little bit about how you guys navigate that feeling of, yes, I feel like I'm being represented, but this wave, you know, threatening to dampen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the curse of being hyper visible. You know, you want to see yourself. And then once you see yourself, everybody else sees you too. And then now you're kind of like cursed with the burden of being everything to everyone. And, you know, it's you kind of remove the individual experience out of it. You know, this is my experience as a queer black woman living in America. Another queer black woman living in America may have a different experience. We're not a monolith, but that's what happens when, you know, there's a time when you're finally being represented and you're seeing more and more of yourself in media. And it kind of comes with the territory, unfortunately. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we're kind of trying to find ways to navigate around that because we really don't honestly have a choice in the matter, you know? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, um, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this. Well, I think about this a lot because I teach courses on, you know, Afrofuturism and aesthetics a class specifically on black superheroes and politics, a class on Afrofuturism and horror, which I'm getting ready to teach now. And, um, you know, we keep talking about these, uh, like the different tropes that are, that are evident in them and, and how they're going to be seen by people. And of course, there's things like, for instance, in horror, like, oh, it's black torture porn, this kind of stuff. It's like, no, it actually isn't. It's actually a mechanism in horror that actually is, can, that can be actually very um, liberating or cathartic too. You know, so we have to, but, but you like like you said, no, but like we're not used to actually seeing ourselves as subject. And so we're not used to actually dealing with the ramifications of how you analyze yourself as that subject in that medium. I mean, in that genre, you know, but as far as like how you navigate it, I, you know, I guess all my career, I've just navigated it with a machete. You know, so you got to be really, really like matter of fact about it. You know, I mean, if you're ever in my classes, I don't, you know, like like Damien was saying about the Kennedy book, like I've. I don't, I don't really bite my tongue about these particular situations. I mean, this is what it is. You know, you can believe it or not, but we have data to state the states about this is how people have been treated. You know, it's like it's a shame that, you know, that someone like Octavia Butler had to work all those odd jobs and, you know, and write, you know, in almost not necessarily a destitute fashion. I mean, she jumped off, you know, fair, but fairly later in her career. Right. She had a lot of a lot of uh, uh, spaces where she was not welcome and she she just kept fighting. So I feel like. There's this, uh, and it's something we, me and Damien talk about a lot too, is this notebook pad where she kind of writes herself into existence. So be it, see to it, right? I mean, we have to have that same kind of spirit and actually to navigate these. So we have to be courageous and understand that we have been given a gift and a platform and we have to use it effectively. Yeah, and I agree with John. I think one, I use two strategies, particularly my social media is purposely an echo chamber. So it's like, we are here for Black creators all day, every day. And if you're not, you pro- like, I probably don't hear it. So that may not be unrealistic, but that may be unrealistic, but that is the world I'm creating for myself. And I, I love creating for my community. And then when I feel like I've hit a wall, one gift to shelter in place is that there's room to rest. And then I think about like people like Octavia Butler, um, or Madam C.J. Walker, I, I love, I don't know, maybe as an entrepreneur, I love Madam C.J. Walker, who like overcame in like times where the barriers were so much higher than anything I could possibly imagine. So just like take a breath, like remember that the universe wants me to succeed one way or another and take that next step. But yeah, it, it can be daunting and it can be difficult, but I try to like block out the naysayers. Hey, Callum, hold you back. I wanted to shift a bit because you all have different areas of expertise and that's why we, we have such a great panel because you all come from different backgrounds. And so we sort of have questions targeted towards each of you. I kind of want to start with Nova because we've been talking about this and just in your opinion, what is it about black science fiction and fantasy that makes it unique or in how does the lived experience of being black, you know, impact the cre- how 
science fiction and f- fantasy is written and how those stories and tro- tropes might be popular. And I and anyone else can chime in. Of course, I know we have a very diverse panel when it comes to like what you all know. But I did want to like start with Nova and hear what she has to say, sort of as a writer, like what that, how you go about it and how you go about maybe in your craft developing your like speculative worlds and things like that and how you think how you can see yourself maybe in Octavia Butler and how she did the same. I think like being black anywhere in the world is a unique experience. Like, you know, and, and I know all groups feel that about themselves, but you know, me being black, <laughs> you know, it is, it's a unique experience. And I think really good fiction is littered in truth. Like it's, it could, it's fiction, but if you don't see truth in it, then it's not good. And I think when it comes to being black and writing science fiction, I think for us, just understanding that our lived experience informs how we respond to things. So, you know, we know when we see things on television, we can tell right away when a black character wasn't written by a black person, you know, or when we're reading books, we can tell right away when, you know, um, someone who wrote this situation may not have gone through that at all. So, you know, when I write, I try to think of me as a black woman, you know, you know, more than just black, but as a black woman, how would I, you know, react to this situation? What would this look like for me? I'm black. So, you know, I, for me, I have natural hair. You know, if I'm in a, a post-apocalyptic world, I got to think about my hair. Um, I'm a woman. I'm an, if I'm in a post-apocalyptic world, I got to think about my cycle. You know, these are things that, you know, people who outside of that don't necessarily understand. But when reading it, they it's unique to them because they're like, you know, this is different. It's not my lived experience, but this is, you know, this person's lived experience. You know, we're just different. You know, the way we talk, the way we walk, you know, the way, you know, we respond to certain things and that really bleeds into things that we create. Our world building is a lot different than, you know, other people, you know, and, you know, with reading Octavia Butler, that's something that is all over her work. You know, her work, her work is, is very black, even though she has other, she, she has aliens and in, in, in books and stuff like that. But, you know, you can read something like Lilith's Brood and understand if Lilith wasn't, you know, a black woman, there'll be a completely different story. And that's something that we can honestly say as Black people that, you know, stories are different when we're at the helm of it. Stories are different when we're writing them. Stories are different when we're starring in them, you know, when it's centered around us. And that's just something that's just a fact, you know? Yeah. Great answer. Did anyone else want to pop in? Sure. I was going to quickly state that being a creator, a Black creator, I feel like, you know, the mainstream speculative writers don't have the added burden of dealing with the the problems that we that we deal with as African-American writers or Black writers, I feel like the story is the first technology to a certain degree, and, and it's how we understand the world. And our world has been very different. And so I think a lot of times, if you look at something like Afrofuturism or Black speculative culture, whatever you want to call it, we actually have the added burden of trying to figure out how to utilize that technology to our own ends to, you know, to free ourselves because we're not necessarily free. You know, we're still dealing with like very, very similar issues. They're not as the walls aren't as high as ISIS stated, but they're still there, you know, and to act like they aren't is, you know, can unmake us actually. So I'm like, well, when I'm creating a story, I want to create a story that is entertaining. It's action packed. It's got all the things that, that that we love in genre fiction, but also understand that I'm trying to unmake a system that is trying to destroy us. You know, I don't have time to actually just be uh, escapist in the work. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to get free. I'm thinking about my my son's future and the world that he's going to be living in. So at this particular point in my in my life at 52, I don't have time to to really create work that's not going to be in service of that. Well, I would love. To now turn to ISIS. So a little bit about how we got started as Black Chicklet. When we started seven, eight years ago, uh, the comment we got a lot was, well, Black people don't read. Black women certainly aren't reading and writing genre. They're not doing this or that. And I would just love, love, love to speak to a bookseller who has her own, who has their own book store with Black speculative fiction and say, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, interesting comment. So uh, Black people read, and I can't remember which which year this was in the Nielsen survey, but like the demographic that was most likely to have read a book in the last six months or something like that was Black women. It was a blip year, but like, so, and Black women read. Like, you know, Black women love Moscato, brunch, and book clubs. That's the truth that I'm putting out there. And That's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> So, yeah, 
Um, and in terms of reading genre fiction, reading speculative fiction, for the Black people, for the Black women that read it and they see each other, there's such like putting on shea butter after the shower. It's so soothing and nourishing and just like, oh, like, I, I feel seen. It's like leaving the hair shop after you got your hair done and you're like, oh my God, it looks so, it's just like such a beautiful mirror and reflection and a point of connection, right? And I like, thanks to a lot of things happening right now, I can do that with like a sense of authenticity. So like, if you like go to the Sister Sci-Fi Instagram page or the website, it's very intentional, black women and black people in Native American people interacting with science fiction fantasy. Like those are the images that you'll see because those images are often lacking, right? And now if you're here for that and you want to support that and you also want to buy a book, definitely feel free. But just know that why I'm out here is to celebrate Black creatives and Native American creatives in the science fiction and fantasy space. And I do that unapologetically. Now, when I started, was I like, oh my God, there's a huge market for this. And I think it'll, like, I know it'll be wildly successful. No, I was just like, I feel really passionate about it. I'm going to read these books in community. And my guess is that there are people who go to Afropunk or watched Candyman or read Octavia Butler who feel the same way. And hopefully they'll find me and think the same way. <laughs> so yeah, in terms of trends and what I see people reading with the success of Children and the Blood and Bone, like I feel like, and John and Damon, keep, please keep me honest, there's a whole new subgenre of West African YA fiction. Like right now, I could probably name like 20 books <laughs> in this space. All my apps just released the first, and I think what will be a duology or a trilogy in that genre. And so, yeah, there's a lot in that space. As a first generation Guinean American, I'm like, I'm excited for it. Also, like, there's a trend within museums to do Afrofuturism exhibits, which I'm 300% here for the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in DC will kick off their ex their exhibition um, in March, 2023. So those are two of the big trends that I'm seeing in what we're reading in the genre and how we're interacting with Black speculative fiction. That's exciting. And now I got to plan a trip to DC because I've been wanting right. to go to that museum period. And now I know that they're doing an after futurism exhibit. I'm excited. Oh yeah, it opens in March, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now, just turning to John and Damien, because even in this conversation, it has made me aware of things that I, I've never adapted anything. So even in this conversation, I've learned and picked up on things that I wouldn't even think about, like how do you present something visually? What time period do you even set it in? And so I would love to hear from you guys. What are some challenges people may not be aware of when they have to bring something in cross mediums? Because even just thinking here, I'm thinking, what if this series had took place like pre-2020 or even like early Obama era when the talk about race was completely different, how would even that sort of a change have impacted, you know, how it would have been presented? So I would love to hear you all just sort of talk about, you know, taking all that we've discussed, what are just things people don't think about when you have to shift mediums and what are some ways you think film will best serve this story and what are some ways it might hinder it? Film, mm -hmm. and I say just so, when I say film, I mean TV and just like the medium of okay. live action film. Huh. That's a lot of questions. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Which means Damien should go first. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing adapting, there were two things that I think pushed us over to set the quote unquote present day in the 70s. One, I read an interview with Octavia where she said it was an interview in the 90s and she said she felt like everything in Kindred was still, you know, sort of as relevant in present day as it was when she first wrote it, with the exception of Dana and Kevin's marriage. Like an interracial marriage meant something different in the 90s than it did in the 70s. So she felt like that was one thing that changed. And we kind of like the sort of the parallels between how, or like the way you kind of compare and contrast how their relationship is treated in the 19th century versus the 70s, which would be different in the 90s. And then also there was an audio drama of Kindred from the 90s where uh, Alfred Woodard was Dana, I think, right? Yeah, and they tried to tie it in. It was right, it was like 90s or early 2000s, but it was right by the um, dot-com, when the dot-com bubble burst at like the turn of the century. And they sort of tied it into that, and it felt sort of weird and dated. 
listening to it after, you know, like I was talking in a class about this and one of the students was like, what's the dot com bubble? You know, like, oh, we're uh, so old. No, I know. I had to like explain it all. It was weird. But so that was another thing that made me feel like, well, just to stay to true to the the spirit of the story and a lot of the subtext you brought out with the comparisons of the two time periods. Um, that was kind of why we kept it in the 70s. And that's why I keep saying, like, I'm really curious how the uh, the TV adaptation will deal with, like, present day and will it bring up. Because, I mean, I think there are a lot of really interesting issues that are not covered as much in the novel that you could bring up set, like, in 2020, uh, just around, like, reproductive rights or uh, gender. The way we talk about gender is much different than it was in the 70s, right? So a lot of stuff like that, I think there's, like, opportunities, but also dangers of, like seeming like you're trying too hard like that the dot-com burst thing felt a little bit like that I mean it's a great audio drama but those little bits felt a little like rang a little hollow to me I don't know if this even answered the first question (laughs) no I I think you did a good job of just like those things you have to consider that maybe the reader in receiving the story doesn't even think about the conscious decision making that goes on in like the scenes when you're when you're even making a change like that like do we bring in current type current things like the economy and things like that. So I think that was a great answer. Did John want to add on to it? Yeah, yeah. I have things. Yeah, just a little bit, though. I mean, because it's really kind of adjacent to what Dana is talking about. And you know, one thing I'm always cognizant of, especially these days, we have so many adaptations. I mean, we have our, the theaters are flooded with them. I mean, essentially, whenever you see like a Marvel Comics film, you know, you're, that's those are all adaptations of original content that is and you know believe me there are so many irate comic book fans are like that's not what iron man would do you know that kind of stuff right so you have to deal with like you know how, how the uh the narrative is going to shift according to so many issues around how things are made you know because i think you know we're so used to consuming things and some people are really cognizant about how film is made but there are so many different moving parts to like creating a cinematic experience or something that's going to be on television like there's so many hands on it and uh you have to be cognizant of that as first things like how is this th- how are these things being made uh we're talking about like adapting something to comics form you have to really understand like what the affordances of comics give you you know so for instance i mean if in some ways like if you're if you're making it adjacent to say like film Color, color, for instance, becomes almost like the soundtrack to your your comic book. We don't have the same types of tools. Like we can't actually do something as immersive as, say, a film because we don't have sound, right? So we have to deal with symbolic uh, communication. Uh, comics have like a really surreal kind of aspect to them as well, you know. The also the other thing too is like time is kind of equal to space, right? So think about how that works with with uh, with a time travel narrative where. Damien would write a scene where like Damien, excuse me, where Dana is like shifting from like, you know, one time to the other. But honestly, that's just two panels uh, juxtaposed to each other. You just change the panels, you know. So it's like there's different things that you have to be be aware of how that particular mediation works. And if you understand that, I think you can actually make a good transition from one narrative to the other. But, you know, we're, we're big, massive comics geeks as far as like how how the form functions. So we're like, OK, well, how do we do that with with a comic like what are the things that you could do like for instance you know damien's idea to to use comics like diagrammatically right so for instance if you read if you read our graphic novel you know when dana is traveling she has all these different things she's taking with her back to the you know to the plantation or whatever like pain reliever and whatever right so you can do a cutaway in a, in a graphic novel that doesn't disturb the narrative because comics are they have this diagrammatic like surreal aspect to them you know like we did a, a whole map of the of the plantation we did stuff where we like like see what's going on in the house with a cutaway you can't do that really with with other media because it just disrupts the flow so much but it's actually inherently how comics work you know they, they speak in symbols so it's stuff like that that i think you know when you're adapting something you have to be cognizant of i feel like i spoke too long i'm gonna shut up no sure, I, I'm gonna shut up. just to <laughs> also speak too long but going along with that i think in any kind of adaptation you have to be extraordinarily aware of the subtext and structure of the original work in order to adapt it properly. Because I feel like John and I, with our work, like we'll take things that Butler did just in prose and sort of transfer that to like visual elements. So like an example in the graphic novel is we made the uh, 1800s uh, have a very bright and full 
color palette. And that was taking the idea from the novel that for the characters, uh, for Dana and Kevin rather, the past was much more sort of visceral, visceral and real to them. So like sort of being aware. And then also Butler's, the way she structures her prose is really dense and tightly woven in ways I don't think like it's masterful because so you don't notice it as just a reader. But if you're trying to take it apart and then put it back together in a different way, it, it becomes really complicated really quickly. Okay. So just sort of being aware of some of these like sort of deep structures, I think, is important and especially important in works like Butler's where like it's all aimed at talking about deep social structures, deep social structures of oppression and power. I mean, I could listen all day. Like, I don't think any of you have spoken enough. <laughs> honestly, I could honestly keep going. But I know that many of us want coffee. And I, before we get to our last question, I just want to thank you all again. This has been so enlightening. Like Danny and I are huge fans of Octavia Butler and we just want to see these works done right and share in the excitement and ward off the haters. And I think that this has been a really like uplifting moment of like community to do that. In that spirit, I want to invite everyone to share any other Black sci-fi authors or illustrators or booksellers or anyone else in the space that you might want to uplift? Oh, man. So many. <laughs> you should start um, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't I don't know where to begin. Like, sometimes I ask authors, so who is your favorite character in the book? And they're like, that's a good question. It's like asking who's your favorite child. So I will pull that one. I can't pick just one. Please go to the Sister Sci-Fi Instagram page. We do that all day, every day. But in terms of like people in the literature industry that I want to go up at this moment. The HarperCollins Union is currently on strike. This morning is day 22. And they're asking for very basic stuff. And the CEO of HarperCollins is not coming to negotiate, according to what I've told. I don't work for HarperCollins. I'm not a part of the union. So this is just what I've been told. And most of the people in that union are Black and Brown people, most of who work in publishing, but also have desires to be creatives. And they need our support as readers, as booksellers. So those are those are the folks who I want to blow up right now, if that's allowed. That's wonderful. As you know, as because I have a um, a publishing imprint with Abrams, right? I'm I'm looking at a lot of people people's work coming through, and so I just want to be celebrate all the the black authors and comic book creators who are trying to get into these spaces. You know, because it's it's you know we need more of these uh, venues, you know, and it's a shame what's happening with HarperCollins, but, you know, I'm uh, all for like creating new new spaces, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I keep accidentally creating like black comic book festivals. <laughs> like tomorrow's, <laughs> tomorrow, I'm here in LA and, and tomorrow we're gonna be, um, you know, at the CAM, the, the, the California African-American Museum. And it's the first, I guess, hopefully it's gonna be the first annual comic book uh, festival there and so i want to uplift all of the vendors and all the people that made that possible and uh yeah I, 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 it's hard like i, I said to, to pick out like a favorite because you know I'm, I'm just you know really in love with the fact that we get a chance to have these conversations now you know so much of my time is spent you know reading work from independently published authors or, or authors who are just doing it all by themselves. So I try to like read a little bit more of the traditionally published stuff, but you know, I really am like passionate about beta reading <laughs> authors who, you know, haven't you know published yet or are trying to publish. So I, I will mention one who, who is, who does who put work out, who's um, independently published. And I'll mention some who are more traditionally published. So like Mary Castor, she has the Opal Charm series and her series is pretty, it's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's young adult. She's a black author on um, PhD. She's pretty awesome. She was like one of the first people who was a fan of my work. So she's like one of the first people I, I beta read for. And I'm really proud of like how far she's come. As far as like traditionally published authors, Kaylin Barron for the like Cinderella's Dead series and the Poison Heart. Right now, I'm actually in the midst of reading Justina Ireland's um, <laughs> um, um, Dread Nation series. Yes, I love Dread Nation. Yeah. I love Rust and Root. I yeah, love Justina spoilers. Ireland. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, and my next one coming up, I think, is awesome. Wings of Ebony. I actually saw on, on Sister Sci-Fi page, you were talking about um, Wings of Ebony. I think the author, J.L., yeah, I can go on and on and on, but those are just a few that I, I want to uplift. And I think you should also take a few seconds to say what your most recent title was and where people can find it, because that just... All seems, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? 
<laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Oh yeah, so I have the first book of my um series, The Dome Trilogy. It's out right now. You can um you can find it on Amazon. That's that's easy for people to go on and you can get a Kindle copy or a paperback copy of it. It's part of a trilogy. The other, the last two books are gonna come out next year, early next year. They're gonna come out at the same time. I'm gonna do a Beyonce. <laughs> just just drop it. <laughs> Yeah, so I hope you guys um, give it a try. You know, you know, I've gotten some pretty good feedback about it, and I'm excited for everyone to read it. It is sci-fi. It is set in a future. It could be utopian or dystopian. We don't know. So <laughs> ask you guys to, you know, check it out. Like, I also feel bad just naming a few people. I'm going to shout out Tim Fielder because I see Inf- Infinitum and Isis's background there. And Tim, we've not read that. Do that. That's a good book, too. But also, I was going to say, like, just comics wise, as John was saying, there are a lot of sort of resources to find out a lot about new and upcoming independent comics artists. And we did a book in 2018 called Black Comics Returns. It's like an art book that uh, we had like 100 people listed in there with different samples of their art. So that's one place to start. There's the, uh, oh, was it Simon or John, what's the book Joe Illage did? Oh, oh. Access Guide. Sure. I forgot the I'm name. But essentially, it's the directory of like Black. Artists, yeah, it's like, publishers. it's like the access guide to black comics or something like that. Yeah, something like that, which is pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, so, so if you look at like Joe Illich Black Comics Access Guide, you will find that Amani Latif uh, has this Peep Game Comics, which is a online black comics outlet, and he does uh, Black Comics Universe now, where he'll like t- highlight different creators. Yeah, and then one of my favorite graphic novels from the past kind of five years, it's an older book, but it was a hot comb by Ebony Flowers slice of life cartooning kind of stuff and that's amazing keith and jones's black comic book day in san diego all the conventions john has founded if you go to those places you will find many things awesome love it um i also love the idea of accidentally founding a black comic (laughs) (laughs) several several that's awesome so I have Black Star on my bookshelf. Thank you. I like showing covers. Yeah, they look really good. I'm a bookseller. And the eightfold path. This is also oh, pretty. That's mega so, right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, those are the two that are here. And Stephen Barnes and Charles Johnson, for God's sake. Which is crazy. And oh yes. And I had the keeper by Tanner. Oh man. Very oh. proud of the keeper. Tanner Bue's first graphic novel. I, I have to check that out. We read The Good House. Oh, yeah. And it was some great, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for her new book. What is it? The um, the Reformatory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't wait for this. That's massive, but I, she's been writing that for a long time. <laughs> so. yeah. And I did an event with um, Nalo joined, and she was like, Yeah, I'm working on something with John. I was like, I can't wait. <laughs> did she, did she tell you what it was? During the event, Nalo said that they couldn't, but can you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that. Well, since the, the artist on it is, they haven't announced it, but I'm like, the hell, they should announce stuff earlier. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm working on a book with with her and Steve Bissett, who co-created John Constantine, right? And um, so imagine Zora Neale Hurston as a paranormal investigator. We are big Zora Neale Hurston fan girls. <laughs> she's like, yeah, it's called. I don't want to say mascot, but she's definitely the uh, patroness of this. <laughs> We we always say she's the godmother because we read, read a lot of um, urban lit, a lot of street lit, and right, right. she's the godmother of it. I'm she's here for it. A lot of things, man. A lot of things. Yeah. So, you know, but your book's going to be called uh, Night Comes Walking, which is um, a quote from of Muse and Men. So. Awesome. Some breaking news exclusive right exactly. here. Exclusive. Love it. Oh, no, but now you have to delete it. I'm sorry. okay well i just want to thank you guys again this was so much fun this was such an amazing way to start a friday morning and we'll be out there looking for you maybe not on the twitter streets but they're on fire right now (laughs) the streets are for when the show comes out and all these recommendations that I'm going to take note of and my wallet will not be happy, but <laughs> she never <laughs> is. Shelf, so. and, and I would her. say like anything I recommend, yeah. most of the books are also available at your local library because I know books yeah. are like not free. Um, so 
just I mean, my thing is, as long as you're reading it, I am a bookseller, but as long as you're reading it. So feel free, like if I recommend something and check it out. Agreed. We are big fans of the library as well. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to wrap up again. Our episode was brought to you by FX's Kindred, the original series only on Hulu. But I'm just really excited for the show. Again, we got to see the first episode. I don't want to brag, but it's just really good. The music was good. I mean, I'm kind of a fangirl for all this stuff anyway. So I was going to kind of love it anyway. But so biased opinion. But I was just really excited. And I think when you all get to sit and see that first episode, it's really going to it's really going to blow you away. So thank you again for taking time out of your early, early morning. <laughs> yes, thank you all again. Thank you, listener, for listening. Again, Hulu streaming now as of the airing of this episode. We just want to wrap up by saying, if you like what you're hearing, if you like what we're doing, be sure to follow us on Twitter for as long as that's a thing, at Black Chick Lit. We are also on Instagram at BCL Podcast, and you can find us online at blackchicklit.com. Yeah, and thanks to Sweet 45 for the use of our theme song, Jones In, as always. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you to our lovely panelists. Thanks all around. All right, so bye, guys. Talk to you next bye. time. Bye.